Christmas, everyone, and welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. If you just stumbled across the message today, then welcome. We hope you'll stick around and be encouraged by God's word. Uh, please leave a comment below to let us know you were here. Now, I don't know if you're feeling in the Christmas spirit yet, but the holidays can be a hard time for people, even in a good year. And just about everyone agrees 2020 has not been one of our better years. Christmas can be hard for different reasons. It's hard to be alone when we're told we're supposed to be together. It's hard to face the holidays when there are loved ones we're grieving or separated from. Expectations, stress, conflict, they can all hit us at this time of year. But God gives us reasons to rejoice. And I think we can take this for granted. Comedian Stephen Martin reminds us how real this is. He performed a song back in 2011 called Atheists Don't Have No Songs. And it goes uh, with the, like this. These are the lyrics, at least. I won't, I won't sing it for you. Christians have their hymns and pages. Hava Nagila's for the Jews. Baptists have the rock of ages. Atheists just sing the blues. Romantics play Claire de Lune. Born again sing He is Risen. But no one ever wrote a tune for godless existentialism. It's a silly song intended to make people laugh, but it does speak to a serious reality. The reality is that it's the presence, power, and promises of God in our lives that are what help people to sing above their circumstances. Everyone can sing when life is easy, but throughout history, Christians have sung even when life was hard because God gives us joy beyond our circumstances. I want to give you some reasons to sing this Christmas in case a bad year has stolen your joy. And those reasons are found in an ancient promise of a coming savior given to the Israelites during a dark period of their history. The promise is recorded in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. And so if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to pause the video and find one so you can follow along as we walk through these verses. Now, you probably won't think of this as a Christmas passage. As you hear the words, you'll be like, I'm not sure I've heard that as a, as, as a pointer to Christmas. But as believers in ancient Israel thought of the coming Messiah, this is one of the passages that they often turn to for hope. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold. Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the word of God. Now, Steve Martin says atheists don't have no songs, but a Christian should have a song of rejoicing to sing. So I want to give you three reasons to rejoice from this passage. And it's my prayer that by the time we're done, we'll all be able to sing a little bit louder. Now, the first reason to rejoice in this passage is that a righteous king is coming. We're given the promise of a godly leader after a long history of ungodly ones. We can rejoice because a righteous king is coming. 
Verse 9 starts with a command that I have to believe is unique to the Bible. God's people are commanded to rejoice, even rejoice greatly, it says. God wants the people to shout loudly, to make some noise because of what he's promised. The call to rejoice appears more than 160 times in Scripture. Other religions may speak of enduring hard times and persevering in difficulty, but joy goes beyond that. The world may talk about a, a superficial kind of forced happiness where we put on a happy face. But the command to rejoice is more than a smile. It's a celebration that starts in our soul that we enter into through faith. Children, they're taught to sing, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. But the Bible's command to rejoice isn't just for happy people with happy lives. We know that because much of the Bible is written to people in very painful circumstances and hard times. Like them, we're tempted to grumble and complain when things don't go well. We tend to look for our happiness in our circumstances. But faith in the good and gracious God's God means that we pursue joy in Him, and an unwillingness to do so is sin. Now, the people that God called to rejoice in this passage didn't think they had much to rejoice about. Zechariah ministered in Jerusalem about 20 years after the exiles had been allowed to return from Babylon. They were excited at first. They were making a new start in the promised land. But disillusionment had set in. Financially, life was hard for them. The, the taxes that were imposed on them were high, and they were trying to establish themselves in a, in, in a new country. They had laid the foundation of the temple, but opposition had prevented them from making progress. When it finally was built, many people wept. For, for those who had seen the scale and the beauty of Solomon's temple, this, exile, this uh, temple that they had built after the exile, it looked cheap and puny. It looked like God had moved from the Marriott Hotel down to the Motel 6. And that felt like a condemnation of their spiritual standing with him. What's worse was the spiritual influence in Israel. In chapter 10, verse 2, it, it summarizes the state of things. It says, For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. The hodgepodge of religion that most people clung to involved untrue homespun spirituality and local religious leaders who gave the people false hope. On top of all of that, there was corruption among Israel's leaders as well. And to God, it felt like no one cared for his sheep, and he was grieved to see them wander. When God calls them to rejoice, it's in the hope that it won't always be this way. People would have been tempted to assume that their circumstances were proof that God had given up on them. His promise assured them otherwise. They saw the half-baked temple, godless leaders, as confirmation that they'd been left in the penalty box. But God's promise was evidence that his good purposes for them were still in play. Specifically, he wanted them to find joy in the hope of a coming king 
He says, behold, your king is coming to you. Israel hadn't had a king on the throne in Jerusalem for as long as most people could remember. And many of the kings they had heard about had been awful. Verse 9 goes on to say that the king would be righteous. It's painful to live under an unrighteous or an ungodly leader. Their decisions bring consequences on everyone they lead. If you were living in Israel when Ahab was king, you would have to endure famine because of his idolatry and sin. The Jews that Zechariah ministered to had been uprooted from their homeland and subject to loss and humiliation because their kings had failed to trust the Lord. A righteous king would change all of that. A righteous king would lead the people in righteousness, and he would lead the people into the blessings of a righteous rule. The promise that a king would come to them showed that God hadn't abandoned his promises. He was still committed to his people. And maybe you need to be reminded of that this Christmas. It may not feel like you have much to sing about, but Christmas is proof that God hasn't given up on you. He's still committed to his people. He hasn't abandoned you to the penalty box. He sent a good shepherd for his sheep. He sent a righteous king for his people. And if you live under his rule, you receive the blessings of his righteousness. If you've trusted in Christ, God relates to you more on the basis of Jesus' righteousness than on your lack of it. You and I receive grace and forgiveness and privileges we would never have any right to if we were to just try to approach God on our own, or through a king or religious leader who is just as sinful as we are. Life under the blessing of a righteous king changes all that. Christmas changes all that. Jesus changed all that. And God wants us to celebrate that fact. He commands us to rejoice. Now, God calls us to rejoice because a righteous king is coming, but also because the king will survive the revolt. That sounds confusing. It's because the most well-known part of this promise is largely misunderstood. Let me explain what I mean by the promise that the king will survive the revolt. The most famous part of this promise comes in the second half of verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The ESV here sounds a little bit like Yoda. Having salvation is he. When you read a literal translation like this and it sounds strange grammatically, it's often a hint that the translators are trying to express something that's a little unusual in the original language. Some of your translations say, righteous and victorious. That's much better English. But it doesn't express part of the nuance of the original word. It literally says, righteous and delivered, or righteous and saved. It's saying that the king who is coming to deliver God's people has been delivered. The one who comes to save his people has been saved. And that's strange. <laughs> the question is, why would he need to be saved? What is he being saved from? Well, let's see if there are some other clues. The next thing that we're taught about this uh, promised king is that he's humble. And that sounds good, right? But that's not usually how we like our kings. We want kings who are triumphant, not humble. 
Do you remember the Twitter storm that erupted in 2018 when Meghan Markle closed her own car door? People, people went crazy and talking about it and, and it was on the news and in the media. Why, why did she close her own, own door? What, a, what an act and was that appropriate for someone in her position? We expect royals to be regal, not humble. The promise here is of a humble king. What does that mean? What makes it even more interesting is the word humble here is a little different than the way we typically use it. In fact, in other places, it's usually translated as either poor or afflicted, like someone who is suffering. It wasn't usually used to say, hey, he's a real humble guy. It was more often used in the sense, he sure has been kicked to the curb, hasn't he? It's describing someone who has been brought down or humbled by the circumstances of life. So why is this promised king humble and not triumphant? Why is he lowly and not pompous? Let's see if there are some other clues. The last thing that we learn about this promised king is that he's mounted on a donkey. Now, you may have heard at some point that kings rode donkeys in times of peace, and so this indicated that the king would come in peace. It's not exactly true. We now know that kings often rode horses in battle because of their speed, so the fact that he's not riding a horse does tell us that he's probably not coming for battle. But there isn't any indication that kings rode donkeys in the ancient Middle East. They did ride mules, but that's a different animal. And this isn't even a donkey. It's a baby donkey. The verse says that he rides in on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Messiah riding into Jerusalem on a baby donkey would be a little bit like Queen Elizabeth visiting Toronto on a bicycle. You'd be tempted to think that she probably had car troubles. So why is the king riding a baby donkey? And why is the king humble instead of triumphant? And why does the king have to be saved before he comes to save? Interestingly, the donkey might give us the answer. There's only one other place in the entire Old Testament where a king rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. There's a painful episode in the life of King David, where his son Absalom leads a rebellion against him. David flees the palace, escapes the city, just as Absalom rides in and takes over. David is humbled. He's brought low. And he's brought to one of the lowest points in his entire life. In fact, at one point it seems almost certain David will be killed in this uprising. But amazingly, he's delivered. And in the midst of this civil war, a servant graciously lends David donkeys. He lends them for him and his household to ride. It's very likely that the prophecy here in Zechariah is pointing back to this episode in David's life and saying, something similar is going to happen to the Messiah. Now, before Jesus rode into Jerusalem that final week, he took great pains to borrow the colt of a donkey. When Jesus gets up on the baby donkey and approaches Jerusalem, the scene is too unusual for people not to remember this prophecy of Zechariah. So there's rejoicing as the prophecy had commanded. People immediately spread cloaks on the road and started shouting, Hosanna, which means God save us. And they declared Jesus to be the promised son of David, this king that 
had long been prophesied. But a rebellion is brewing. Before the end of the week, the authorities will stage a coup and have the righteous king crucified. Interestingly, neither Matthew nor John include the having salvation part of the prophecy when they quote it in their Gospels. Because when Jesus rides into town, he hasn't yet been saved yet. He hasn't yet been delivered. But on the third day, Jesus is delivered. He's raised from the tomb. He's delivered. He's been saved from death's claws himself. And so now he's able to offer salvation to all who come to him in faith. Now, the people to whom Zechariah gave this prophecy, they couldn't possibly know the amazing way that the Messiah would fulfill the details of this promise. But they knew that when their king came to save them, it would likely be in the midst of a rebellion from which he would need to be delivered. They were to rejoice in the news that their king would survive the revolt. And we can celebrate with even greater confidence today. Christians are the ones who can read news reports of opposition to Christians and still rejoice that we serve a king who will survive the revolt. We're the ones who read of godless political decisions and anti-Christian laws. But instead of giving in to despair and discouragement, we rejoice that our king will survive the revolt. We're not supposed to be surprised that we live in the midst of a spiritual battle with forces mounted against our God. But we are supposed to rejoice. Faith means we have confidence and we know how the battle ends. Our king will return triumphant. So where does that leave us? A discouraged community of believers in Zechariah's day was called to rejoice in the promise that a righteous king was coming. And they were called to rejoice that the king would survive all the opposition that was mounted against him. But finally, they were called to rejoice because the king would bring peace to the world. Consider the promise given to Israel in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. To cut off the war horses and, and chariots was essentially a promise to get rid of the tanks and the Humvees. But notice that the military equipment here belongs to Israel. Apparently, they won't need it anymore. Cancel that order of F-35 fighter jets. The battles are coming to an end. Now, Israel had known peace under Solomon, but that's a time when they increased their military defenses, not decreased them. Apparently, the coming king will be different than that. He'll bring an end to war because he'll rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. These words would have breathed life into the returning exiles. They were tired of war. They were worn out from the endless striving to get more chariots than their neighboring nations. They were tired of all the loss and bloodshed that war brings. We've been so sheltered from war here in Canada that most of us don't know how brutal it can be. The promise here is the Messiah will bring it all to an end. The King will bring peace to the world. Now, the New Testament writers didn't quote this part of the promise. 
This wasn't fulfilled in Jesus' coming at Christmas, but he did lay a foundation for a future world peace. He did that in a couple of important ways. The first is that he made peace with God on our behalf. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've put your trust in Jesus, you have peace with God. That means he hasn't just forgiven you, he's been reconciled to you. You have a, a relationship with him that's secure and real. You have peace with God. But Jesus also gives us personal peace in the midst of a world of conflict. John's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 33, he promised this. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus gives us the gift of inner shalom peace when the circumstances of life have us feeling shell-shocked. We need to seek that peace in Jesus Christ, but it's peace that he's eager to give. Can that peace help you sing this Christmas? Can that peace help you rejoice in a lockdown? Can it stir your thoughts upward when the news keeps trying to draw you downward? It can and it must. God commands us to rejoice and it's evidence of our faith and trust in him when we do. Now, Steve Martin joked that atheists don't have no songs, but we know that Christians have lots of them. Mary Ellen Rothrock was a grad student in English literature, and in university, in university she said atheism had become her religion. But she felt an emptiness inside. There was a void she longed to fill. And so she tried meditation. She met with a supervisor for guidance, and she meditated regularly for close to a year. But she had an unusual struggle. She kept trying to empty her mind of her thoughts and concentrate on her mantra. But as she did, there was a line from Handel's Messiah that kept coming into her mind. Over and over again, she heard the line, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. She found the music thrilling, and the language was full of joy and hope. But she also knew you weren't supposed to be thinking about Handel's Messiah when you're meditating. So she brought it up to her meditation coach. He told her, ignore the words that kept coming to her mind. Focus on the mantra. Ignore the distractions. But as much as she tried to follow his advice, she became convinced that they weren't just random thoughts. They weren't just distractions. That phrase, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. She came to believe that it was an invitation from a personal God who wanted her to know the joy that she so lacked. It was a call of a God who fills our void and pursues us in love. That atheist put her faith in the Messiah, and she learned to sing with the joy that he inspires. If you don't have a song and you don't know the Savior, come to him this morning in faith. Learn why Christians can sing in the darkness. See the joy that he can give to his people. If you do know the Savior, but you don't have a song, then learn to lean into the promises God's given us. Learn the difference between amazing grace and, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. 
They're different songs. When Christians live like atheists, they don't have no songs. They grumble and complain. But when believers rest in God's promises, he gives them reasons to rejoice. Let your, let your heart sing to Jesus this Christmas. He's worthy of our praise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us reasons to rejoice. We thank you that you haven't given up on us. You haven't left us alone. You've sent a righteous king to lead us. And when we follow him in faith, we receive and enjoy the blessings that come from his rule. Father, thank you for the peace that you bring. Thank you for the price that you paid that we might have life, that we might be delivered. Help us to spread that peace and help us to glorify you, to show our trust in you by rejoicing, by singing loudly, by lifting up our voices and in our hearts declaring our praises to you. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I hope today's message has given you a song and some reasons to rejoice in Jesus this Christmas. If you think this is a message that other people need to hear, then help share the link and spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit www.gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.